reading in Luke 6, verses 1 through 10. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the green fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there with a right hand that shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everybody. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it. He looked around at them and then said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. We've been spending some time in Luke, specifically last week in 5. I want to just uh, pull us to that for a minute before we take on the section of Scripture that Wes just read us in Luke 6. The last story of Luke 5, beginning in verse 33, the last pericope, is about fasting. And it doesn't seem to have any apparent connection to what's happening around it, except if you want to conceive of this as somehow sequential. But let's read this and see what it tells us. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking the old wine, wants the new, for he says the old is better. So Jesus tells a story in the wake of an analogy of a wedding. Is a wedding a time of feasting or fasting? feasting. And Jesus is telling us a little bit about himself in this moment. That his disciples are not about fasting because they are with the bridegroom who has come. 
So while it is true that the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John fasted and refrained, Jesus' disciples were not required to do so. Now the connection that I see in this passage to Luke 6 has to do with this. A wedding is not a fast day, it's a feast day. And a Shabbat is not a fast day, it is a feast day. Sabbath is a day of feasting, not fasting. It is a day to enjoy the fruits of one's labors. It is a day of celebration. It is a day in memoriam. It is a day to engage those pleasures of candlelight and prayer, music and good bread and good food, and if you'll pardon the use of the word, good wine. It is the day of celebration because it points to two huge things biblically. Huge. Gigantic. You know what they are. You've heard me talk about it and you knew it before I mentioned it. The first one is found in Exodus 20. And what is it? The commandment, right? Which is a memorial to what? Creation. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy because God created in the six days previous. Then when we go to Deuteronomy, what do we find that it memorializes there? Salvation. What kind of salvation? Specifically in Deuteronomy is it speaking of? Deliverance from Egypt and slavery. Deliverance from the bonds of slavery and being caught and stuck in a land not our own. Of being an enslaved race. And that's what sin is, isn't it? It's a form of slavery. The challenge, of course, is then to understand and make that leap, which is very reasonable to make, that if Sabbath is not just a monument to creation, but a monument to deliverance. And if we understand Egypt and its period of slavery in relationship to Israel to be not just a literal time frame from which the Exodus took place, but a spiritual thing as well. Because when Jesus is born, some year and a half something like that later, we find a decree going out to slay all the firstborn in Bethlehem, correct? Who issues that decree? Herod. Fortunately, he dies a few years later. In the meantime, an angel shows up to Joseph and says, get out of here. Take your family and go. And where are they to go? Egypt. Temporary salvation is found in Egypt's land. They will live down there. They will survive down there very much as Israel's 12 would live down there and survive down there for a season. Jesus would return to Nazareth. Joseph would resume carpentry work. They would go on to have other children. 
Jesus would begin a ministry. But Jesus and the Egypt connection is not an accident. And so this reference in Deuteronomy speaks to us not just of deliverance from slavery literally, but slavery to sin figuratively. It's indicative of redemption. Well, that we are and that we've been redeemed are two great causes to celebrate in my book. I won't be fasting at lunch today, just in case you were wondering. And I know you weren't. You won't be either, probably. So with that background, we get to Luke chapter 6 in the passage just read. And we find Jesus' disciples, or Jesus and the disciples, going through the grain fields there, and the disciples beginning to pick some heads of grain and rub them together with their hands and eat the kernels. And the Pharisees, ever vigilant and watching, want to know why they are doing the unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, I have found, and I'm not a great student of human nature, but I've observed a few things. I have found that our drive, typically, is to take something wonderful, meaningful, good and true, and surround it with as much garbage as possible for fear of polluting it. Does that strike you as the human impulse, pretty much? No? Do you know what I'm referring to? Here we have this pure and good thing, a feast day, And the disciples, not having something to eat, are just rubbing grain together and eating it. And the Pharisees are concerned because the act of harvesting grain and threshing it is work, and work is a violation of the commandment, missing the point that the commandment was about memorializing the gifts of being and creation and redemption, and that it was a feast day. In other words, our tendency sometimes is to miss the larger picture and to impose a matrix of little rules and regulations to help us somehow not fall into the trap of violating any aspect of this great day. Well, it's kind of a the same kind of impulse that... Uh, we've experienced all through history. We take a great life, for example, in history, declare the person a saint and make a bust of them, which we'll put up in the cupola of a cathedral. Because we don't really know that the only way to memorialize the life is not to iconoclast it, but to emulate it. Right? How do you honor someone the most? By painting a picture of them or finding some way to live as they lived? Boy, I must really be in a vacuum. I can't hear you. I can't see you. Uh, Am I speaking Greek? I'm asking rhetorical and therefore unanswerable questions, so I should be satisfied with your silence. 
It's an unusual thing when you think about it that someone would leave anything pure. Because in time we forget the virtue of life and the value of emulating it. We seek only to honor the one who lived virtuously. And that tends to be the religious impulse in general. We had a gift in our church. Many of you know about it. Some of you don't. A wonderful gift that came to us in the person of a relatively uneducated young teenage girl named Ellen Harmon, who eventually married a powerful itinerant preacher, a sort of mega personal tour de force, if you will, who went from place to place preaching, thumping his Bible in the tradition of the day. And her gift was a connection and a word. And she shaped the opening pages and the sort of, I don't know, ethos of our denomination. But generations following her had no idea what to do with her. So they iconoclasted her. They made icons to her. Oh, no, 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 we don't have any... We don't have any in the naves of this church. But we have people who've lived through that era and tradition. I remember myself as a child hearing sermons in which there were no scriptural references whatsoever. They were chain quotes, one after the other, from the writings of Ellen White. Any of you remember those sermons? We didn't know what to do with the gift we weren't able to pursue the spirit in the same way and we couldn't emulate the productivity and the connection that she brought. And so we sainted her. Ave Ellen. And then we raised up generations who said, no, we don't do that. We don't make idols of people. We don't make idols of words. And that generation spent their lives tearing her down. And now we stand in this, this is an interesting aside, we stand in this place where the next generation will decide her fate. Either they won't know her, or we're in danger of getting back to iconoclastic reference and reverence. What we need to learn is the thing itself is what's sacred only because God has made it so. Only He is holy. And that by His blessing and by His touch and by His setting apart, by His sanctification, by His making holy, the Sabbath day becomes something worthy of our attention. Not just theologically, not just against those who would keep Sunday, but because it references two essential parts of life and faith. The very being of all of us in creation and the redemption of all of us in the acts of God through history and specifically through the life and death of Christ. That is an amen moment. So Jesus 
enters this with a new twist, with a different perspective. And he knows he's headed for trouble. Jesus answers in 6 verse 3, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, let's take the first thing first, the story of David eating the showbread. He did violate the law in that regard. But was he judged? Do you know the story? He was not. The priest was judged for giving him the sword of Goliath and paid with his life. But the men ate David's little band and went on. And David became king in the most glorious era. Well, actually Solomon was. But David inaugurated the golden age of Israel. So Jesus makes this important reference, but then this bomb is dropped in verse 5, and it's a bomb. This one's huge. It explodes on the ears of the Pharisees. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, and I'll come back to that. Verse 6, on another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching a man there whose right hand was shriveled, uh, was there, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason at this point already to accuse Jesus, so they were watching closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. And so he got up and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or evil, to save life or destroy it? And why does Jesus ask these questions? Because if God is God of the Sabbath, then the Sabbath is about good things. And if it is a memorial of something creative and the memorial of something redemptive, then when we are healed and when we are redeemed, we have engaged the creative and redemptive acts. He looked around the mall and then said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. They had lost the big picture again. They had lost, lost a view of what Sabbath was about, what it memorialized, what it was for. They had missed it. I, when I talk about Sabbath have tried to distill several principles from Scripture that I think are applicable. And you've heard these in various ways and in various places before, but just as a reminder, the first principle of Sabbath-keeping is rest. It is to be a change in pace, in focus, and in life. The second principle of Sabbath keeping is worship. For we find that in fact that is what Jesus did Sabbath to Sabbath as was his custom to enter the synagogue and engage. Jesus taught us 
here in Luke 6, that it was lawful to do good. And so acts of service are one of the principles upon which Sabbath is based. We find that God in the worship context wants to be in special connection and relationship with us. There is, we say, a special blessing attended to this day, attached to this day. We want that connection, but God also makes it perfectly clear that you cannot love me and hate your brother. God makes it perfectly clear. If you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. So never can we engage the vertical access of worship only. Worship is never an act directed solely upward. It is an act in which our harmony horizontally merges in an act of focus to the divine. Something mysterious and wonderful happens in that sense and in that context. So that is part of Sabbath keeping, relationships with our God and with one another. It's a time to develop and strengthen those, a time to enjoy them, a time to reap the benefits of connectedness in all of its forms. It's a time of engagement and feasting. Jesus said, I've come to make you free, and if you're free, you should be free indeed. So unlike what had happened at the time of Christ where there were hundreds upon hundreds of regulations about how to manage Sabbath, it's about freedom. You are free for a change, not to engage the economic system that surrounds us. You are free for a change, not to be at work. You are free for a change to take time and leisure. Oh, and by the way, this was controversial for me as a kid, but I believe it with all my heart. Sabbath is also a day of re-creation. And as we say it correctly in the English language, recreation. Have a good time sometimes on Sabbath. You and I will need to talk if you're recreating four out of five Sabbaths a week, a month, I mean. And I never see you here. We may need to talk about how you might want to structure uh, the various competing principles of Sabbath keeping. But I think we should also talk if you're here 52 weeks a year. Because there are many things that are allowed that give us life as part of Sabbath. Well, that may be enough for you to chew on right there, but we come back to what Jesus did. And in this very deliberate act, he tells a man with a withered hand a useless limb, a dead limb to extend it. He restores it. He redeems it. He gives it life. And the declaration he makes is key. 
The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is the greatest revelation here to date. And if you doubt that, just think about what we talked about earlier. Sabbath signified and memorialized two major things. What were they again? Creation and redemption. When Jesus says at this point in his ministry, I am Lord of the Sabbath, he is saying, I am Lord of all creation, including the seventh day, which is the Sabbath. It's an astounding statement. And then he says, I'm Lord of redemption for a fallen race and planet. I will free you from your slavery. And that is just as great a revelation. We're nearing the end of Epiphany, this season of discovery of who the babe of Bethlehem is. And as we leave that season, I think it technically ends the 17th of February. As we leave that season, I want us to have engaged these revelations, these mysteries that have opened up to us in Luke about a God who became flesh and dwelt among us. This word who speaks life and order and salvation. This word who gives us his word small w, that he is Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of all creation, Lord of all redemption. As you read your Bible, don't lose these facts. Don't lose sight of these truths. Don't lose sight of the revelation in these words. And Sabbath will never be the same For any of us, again. And so, Lord of all creation and all redemption, Lord of this Sabbath and giver of grace, we bless you and thank you this day. Amen.